together. That is our heart. That is the heart of this pastoral team. You know, when we first started splitting, well, we first went to three services, didn't we? That was, well, that was a nightmare. And then we went to two and that's been pretty tough. And it's been a bit of a learning curve for us to see, hey, is this, is this work? I got many other pastoral friends in Sydney and they said, oh, mate, you're going to love it. You're going to just want to stay at three. No, we hated it. It was horrible in every way. We want to be back to one service as fast as we possibly can. And so Barker will be the start of that. We long to be back together. You know, I'm painfully aware that every week when we gather, it is family morning, but there is only ever half the family here at once. That's hard. We want to be back together as soon as we can. Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We are presently enjoying a series together called Our Gospel DNA and Culture. And we're looking at the cultural distinctives of Sovereign Grace Church. Cultural distinctives that are informed by the gospel and cultural distinctives that then out of the gospel we want to see manifested in our church. For the last 10 years, they've always been distinctives that have marked us. And the last 39 years of Sovereign Grace Church is globally And today we're looking at the sixth distinctive that we want to bring up, and that is the distinctive of encouragement. The opportunity that we all have to use our words to build others up. So we're going to read just one verse together, Ephesians 4 verse 29. It is a short verse, but it is packed with meaning and content, and I believe help for us this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's pray. Lord, it has been a joy to worship you in song this morning, to hear other voices around us bringing praise to you and in doing so spurring on our own praise to you. Father, would you have your way amongst us now through the preaching of your word? Lord, we are all your children. We are all your sheep. And so, Lord, would we hear the voice then of our Father, the Good Shepherd, this morning? Would you change our hearts, affect our hearts? Lord, care for us through the preaching of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the church, as biblically defined, really is the dearest place on earth. The dearest place on earth is not Disneyland or Noosa, beautiful though that is. The dearest place on earth, as biblically defined, is the local church. You know, when we gather together, we are a temple before the Lord. People are built for different tribes and languages and nations, but he's building us together brick by brick and building us into a place, a dwelling place for him. That's why we're able to say when two or more are gathered together, he is with us. Together we're a family. We don't just go around calling each other bro or sis. We actually are that. Before the Lord, once upon a time we were aliens and strangers, but not anymore. He's built us together into his very household and made us all members of that household, meaning that we are indeed family together. We're also a body. 
We all have a different part to play in the body, different gifts and abilities, but he's brought us together so that we may be used for the building up of the local church and the expansion of his kingdom as we stand together side by side and therefore stand together as a city on a hill to, to our community to see. And together we're a bride, a bride that Jesus Christ laid his life down for all. Those brothers and sisters that you see around you are not just people that we do a club with. They are people that Jesus Christ bled for. The church really is, as biblically defined, the dearest place on earth. And when we stand together as a local church, oh my, it is a beautiful thing, is it not? When we stand together, standing firm in one mind, of one heart and one spirit, when we strive side by side for faith in the gospel, it is a beautiful thing before the Lord. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity together. And that's true. When we stand together, side by side, of one mind, of one faith, of one heart, it is a beautiful thing before the Lord. And yet, here is the sobering and painful reality of each and every local church around the world. The painful and sobering reality is that for each and every one of us, we are always so vulnerable to disunity and therefore division. It is a sobering reality. It is a sad reality. It's a truthful reality. And there are many reasons for that. First off is the reality of indwelling sin. I mean, for all of us, indwelling sin is a factor in our lives. It's a present reality, isn't it? My only comfort is that the Apostle Paul himself, the one who we respect so clearly in Scripture, he clearly battled with it. Romans chapter 7, he says, Why is it that I keep doing the things that I know I shouldn't do? And I don't do the things I know I should do. Oh, wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to battle between the new self and the old self. He knew the heartache of that reality. And yet because we all battle with indwelling sin... The harsh and sad reality is that at times we will all be on the end of other people's sin. My friends, it can't be avoided. It's part of family life, harsh and sad though it is. And the Lord knows that. That's why we don't hear in scripture, if your brother sins against you, it's when your brother sins against you. When we sin against one another, the Bible makes it clear we're to do one of two things. One option is that we overlook the offense. We overlook the offense for the glory of the Lord. The other option is in love, we go to our brother or we sister and we talk to him about it in a desire to win them, in a desire to love them and help them see that they've got cream, cream cheese on their face. And yet, sadly, when we're faced with those two options, sometimes we go for option C, don't we? Which means we harbor the hurt. We keep it within. And then sadly, so often that hurt grows and division and disunity come as a result. Given the reality of indwelling sin, each and every local church is always vulnerable to disunity and therefore division. Times that by 10 when you also understand the reality of the devil. See, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 not to be uninformed of his schemes. And yet, sadly, I think sometimes we do go around uninformed of his schemes, do we not? And yet, here's the reality. 
Satan is called at different times in the Bible the accuser of the brethren. Or the, the one thing he wants to do more than anything is split us up from one another. He wants to bring division. He wants to bring disunity. And there is always a battle at hand. John MacArthur says it this way. <clears throat> he says it's easy for believers, especially in the Western world, where the church is generally prosperous and respected, to be complacent and become oblivious to the seriousness of the battle around them. They rejoice in victories that involve no battles and in a kind of peace that is merely the absence of conflict. Yet theirs is the victory and peace of the defector who refuses to fight. They're not interested in armor because they do not believe that they are engaged in a war. But God gives no deferments or exemptions. Listen, his people are at war and will continue to be until Christ returns. You know, it's so easy for us to think that we live in peacetime. But as biblically defined, we don't. There is one who prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour us, looking to divide us, looking to sow discord and difficulty. We are all at war with Satan and we will be until the moment that Christ returns or we die. And Satan's tactic and all his power and evil and cunning is to employ all the weaponry he can to destroy us, to blind us, to cast doubt over us, to tempt us, to sow suspicion and accusation and to tear us apart. That's his plan. And you add then to that COVID and the disruptions of COVID and you've got a problem. See, I want to just have a family moment with you a moment because here's the reality. As your pastoral team, I think we would be aware that we are more tempted to disunity right now than probably we've ever been in our last 10-year history. Why is that? Well, indwelling sin's a reality. The devil's a reality. But COVID is something that Satan is using to fan into flame left, right, and center. I mean, think about it. So many churches across the world are totally displaced and totally, they're totally alone from one another. Some of the churches in the UK haven't met for over a year. Even for us. You know, in September 2019, we planted out Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta and we're all on a high, right? But then what happens is eventually you realize, man, they've actually left us. And that's 30 of our best friends. That's 30 of our best folk. That's hard to just replace in a moment. And so it took time, I think, for us to find that we're really finding our feet without them of how this works because we lost so many folk. But then what happened? COVID. Isolated. We started to worship in our own homes. We were completely um, dis- disarrayed from one another for some time. And then when we could come back after many months, we went to three services. The family now isn't one, it's three. And even then we weren't able to sing, so we just stand. We can't even hear any voices. Even as things got better, we were able to go to two services, which is what we are now. But functionally and physically, we are still completely distant from one another. That's the thing that COVID's done. We are unusually susceptible then to division and disunity. What is already happening physically is something Satan wants to fan into flame to see in reality. For every church across the world, we are all vulnerable to disunity and therefore division. And sovereign grace, we are no different. We are not immune to this. 
And that's why I'm so grateful for Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. Because it's in this chapter, in these verses, that Paul explains to us in the providence of God what we need to do. Understanding these temptations. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Listen. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You know, we can be eager to do so many things, can't we? We can be eager to go on holiday, eager to get married. But the Apostle Paul is saying here, be eager to maintain the unity. You know, that Greek word there for eager could not be any more up and at them. He's basically saying, do all you can, do it intentionally, and do it now. There's dangers. The sirens are going off. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of the things I so appreciate about the rest of his letter is one of the things he does in the book of Ephesians is he helps us understand then how we cultivate and actually do that. How we actually eagerly maintain the unity in the the bond of the Spirit of peace. And so he tells us right up front, you know, the only way we can do this is to be humble. So he tells us we need to pursue unity with all humility. It starts then with a contrite disposition of heart towards God and others. A contrite disposition where we understand, I'm probably not seeing everything through 2020 lenses here. I want to learn. I want to consider myself a learner before the Lord. It also takes godliness, something that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 5, the process of imitating God as his beloved children. The process of learning what it means to be gentle with one another and patient with one another and forbearing with one another, just as Christ is us. Then the importance of fellowship. He tells us right up front, hey, you're going to need each other. You used to be aliens and strangers towards one another, but not anymore. You need one another for the glory of the Lord. And so we have to pursue fellowship, the important reality that we need others, and then the service. The whole process of considering others more significant than ourselves and therefore giving ourselves to serve them. Not because we have to, but because we want to be like Christ who laid his life down for others. And we want to be like him. If we're going to maintain the unity, it takes all those things. But what it also takes, Paul helps us see here in Ephesians 4.29, what it also takes is encouragement. And so the careful use of our words to Build others up. Encouragement is vital in the pursuit of unity and the maintenance of unity in a local church. And so it's encouragement that I want us to look at today, understanding the important role that this plays for the glory of God, but also the unity of our local church. Three points in this morning. Number one, the power of our words. I want us to understand how powerful they are as biblically defined. Number two, the content of our words. And then number three, the effect of our words, the fruit, if you will, of well-chosen words. And here's my hope as we look at this this morning. My hope is that as a local church, we would freshly be reminded that our words matter. In fact, our every word matters. And in encouragement then, we have such an important part to play in the building of the church. 
Three points in this morning, and let's start with number one, the power of our words. You know, there's no doubt that as Paul pens this letter, that he understands the intrinsic power of words. That's why in the verses prior to this one and the verses after this one, he's still talking about words and speech and how we communicate. Because he knows that it's just so important before the Lord. And it's in James's letter that he takes up that theme and uses different analogies to give illuminating expression to the power of our words so that we can understand just how powerful these things are that come out of our mouths. You know, a recent study showed that on average per day, we all speak 25,000 words a day. Isn't that incredible? 25 little things come out of your mouth every single day. 25,000 words on average come out of our mouths. And the Apostle Paul wants to help us understand, along with James, these are powerful things. This is what we read in James 3, verses 2 through the opening part of verse 6. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. You know, James's words could not be stronger and clearer, could they? And what he gives us is three carefully crafted analogies here to help us understand just how powerful our words are. So in verse 3, he talks to us about the bit in a horse's mouth, the bridle that is used to direct a horse. I mean, one of the things I love about the Royal Easter Show is you get to see horses. I mean, I just love them. They're amazing. Not as good as bulls. They're even better. But horses are huge, powerful creatures, are they not? You put 250 kilos of man or woman on the back of a horse. That's the same weight as a heavyweight Olympic powerlifter. And the horse will completely continue to move and breathe. It won't even break a sweat. It will just carry on and not even notice it's there. If you take weight off a horse and you allow a horse to run, it will run half a kilometer in just under 25 seconds. A horse that is 450 kilograms of raw power and speed. And you you put a 30 kilogram jockey on its back with a bridle in its mouth and it will go wherever the jockey turns. Just a small bridle, just in its mouth. And yet it completely responds to it and turns accordingly. Such is the power of the tongue, James helps us see. It's only small, but it does so much. Helps us see that it's like also the rudder on a ship. In the ancient world, there were many large ships. In Acts chapter 27, for example, Paul was carried to Rome on a 276-person ship. It's hard to believe that they were so big 2,000 years ago, but they were. Well, today they're obviously even bigger. You go down to Sydney Harbour and you realise, man, these these Caribbean cruisers, they are massive. But if you ever see them out in the water, this whole great ship is just guided by a small rudder. It's incredible. In comparison to the size of the ship, the rudder is so small. And yet wherever the captain turns the rudder, 
so goes the entire ship. Wherever the rudder goes, the ship follows. And James wants to help us see, your words are powerful like that. Your tongue is small, but it's so powerful. To help bring imagery to that, in verse 5, he gives us the picture of a forest fire. And how a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. In 2020, you know, obviously we had the bushfires here. It's something we never really saw in the UK that much because it rains like this nearly all the time. And so you don't tend to have any fires particularly, particularly in Wales. It's just you live under a constant sprinkler system. But in Australia, it's dry and it's hot and fires take place. You know, last year, Australia lost 128 million hectares of Australian bush. That's a ton. 128,000 square kilometers was burnt in a moment. Animals were obviously destroyed. Sadly, some people lost their life. Much property was completely destroyed. How? Well, because of a few sparks and a few small fires. And then they get out of control. And then suddenly the whole place is burning and people are losing lives. James wants to help us see is that our words, they're like that. They may just be small. They may be insignificant for us, particularly when we consider using 25,000 of them of a day. But they're powerful. This small movable structure attached to the floor of our mouths called the tongue, it is such a powerful thing. We read in Proverbs 18 verse 21, for death and life are in the power of the tongue. I mean, you talk about a provocation and warning. Your words have the ability to build up and bring life or to tear down and bring death. That's how powerful they are. And as Paul pens this letter here to the Ephesians, he knows this. That's why it's so important to him. He understands that if we're going to eagerly maintain the unity, if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, our words are going to be super, super important. And what he helps us see here then is the content of our words, which is my second point, the content of our words. And let's look and pay attention to what Paul, with his whole understanding of the power of our words ringing in our ears, let's look at what he says for us. He says, let No corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, what should be immediately obvious to every one of us in the room at this moment is this is a command. This is not just a suggestion or a recommendation or, hey, sovereign grace, here's an idea. No, this is a command. For our good, for the sake of unity, and for the Father's glory, this is a command, and it is a command with a contrast. Let no, but only. Do not speak like this. It will bring damage and destruction and death. Speak like this. Use your words like this. It is a command with a contrast. And so he begins with the words, let know. What he's talking here about is forbidden talk. Talk which should not even be named among us as a church. And the type of talk that he's talking about is corrupting talk. <clears throat> and you know, with this word corrupt, as I was studying it again this week, it, it really does paint the picture. 
Paul isn't just using it just by accident. He's using it to help paint a picture at the same time because the Greek word that he's using here for the word corrupt is exactly the same Greek word that we would use to describe food that is spoilt or decayed or rotten. You know, growing up in Spalding in Lincolnshire in the United Kingdom, as I've told you before, I grew up on the Shire. So if you watch Lord of the Rings and you watch, you know, where he's, where Frodo's from, welcome to my life. You know, that's really like where I grew up. And so one of the things I did as a kid is we would get on our bicycles and we would, we would bicycle through apple, apple orchards. We do it all the time. As you could pick apples off the tree and you'd eat them. That was back in the day when I used to like fruit. Now and again, you'd get one with a maggot in and that's probably what really put me off. But you know, at different times, the farmers wouldn't be able to get all the apples out of the trees. The time, the window would obviously fall short at different times, or winds would come through and drop a lot of them off. And once they're on the floor, one of the things you would see all the time as you rode your bicycle through them is rotten fruit. And sometimes the, 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 the farmers would gather them all together, and they would just gather them into piles. And what you would see as you cycle through them over days is once one of the apples has started decaying, they all start decaying. It affects them all. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to us here. Let no corrupt talk. He, he paints such a picture, such a vivid picture of rotten fruit with that exact word that he's using there. And the type of speech that Paul is talking about here then is simply this. It is any and all speech that is damaging to an individual or to the church. Corrupt talk is any and all speech that is damaging to an individual or to the church. And then the verses that follows and proceed, he explains what that is. What it is that there should be nothing named among us. It is angry speech. It is vulgar speech. It is lying. It is gossip. And it is slander. Paul wants to make it clear <clears throat> for the glory of God and for the building up of the church. Such talk should not even be named among us. And one would assume then that given this clear command in scripture and given the imagery of this corrupting talk and what it looks like, one would assume that this wouldn't have any place in our lives at all, wouldn't you? You would think that we would be so far distant from this talk because we don't want anything to do with it. And yet, sadly, if we're honest, in different ways and to different degrees, this is a temptation and tendency that we can all still be confronted by in our lives, isn't it? We can all still have a tendency and temptation towards this type of talk. And if not giving it, listening to it. Just allowing it to affect us. My experience is that we don't often start that way. We don't often start thinking, you know, I'm just going to gossip or slander. That's not the point. But my experience is that we just get loose with our words. We forget how powerful they are. And so we do it under the banner of just sharing or just venting or just talking. And yet if we pay attention and think honestly and biblically, what is coming out of our mouths is corrupt talk. And what Paul wants to help us see is that should have no place amongst us. Why? Because it will tear you apart. It will bring great 
damage to you and to others and to the church. You know, in the United Kingdom, growing up in England, they used to say, I remember my mum and dad saying it to me, and everybody used to say it, you know, sticks and stones don't break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You ever heard that one? It was a faithful, wasn't it? So somebody would be really sad about something that a friend had said, and you'd say, well, just remember, sticks and stones don't break your bones, but words, break your bones, but words will never hurt you. It sounds so sweet. It's just rubbish. Words do hurt people. Words do damage people. I would rather have sticks and stones. Words damage. Words damage marriages. Words corrupt speech, damages families. Words damage friendships, they tear people apart. And words damage local churches. Words that are fanned into flame by the devil himself bring disunity and division in a local church. And so Paul wants to help us see they should not even be named among us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. You know, there's another saying in the UK where we said, if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. It sounds so lovely. Again, totally wrong. <laughs> you know, Paul does not finish with this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. No, he doesn't say that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but there is something else you need to do instead. There are words that you shouldn't use because they will bring damage, but there are other words that you must use because they will build up and people need to hear them for the glory of God. And so having said, let no, he now says, but only, but only such as is good for building up. He's now drawing identification to godly talk and talk that builds up that he wants us to use. We are to put off then corrupt speech. Speech that is detrimental and destructive and divisive. And to put on encouraging speech. Speech that strengthens and edifies and builds for the glory of God. And what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Let me explain, first of all, what it's not. When the Bible makes reference to encouraging speech, what it's not talking about here is that speech that is merely polite or courteous or kind Speech that is merely man-centered or insincere flattery. It's not talking about that at all. No, what Paul is talking about here is speech that builds up. So speech that is gospel-centered. Speech that uses words that are rooted in and derived from the Bible and which reveal the character of God. Words that help us to see the activity of God in our lives and words that help to identify the active presence of God in someone's life. Look in headline then, this is what edifying speech is. This is what encouraging speech is in a nutshell. Encouraging speech is speech that leaves someone more aware of and amazed by God than they were when the conversation started. That's when you know when you've been on the receiving end of encouraging speech or when you've given encouraging speech because you or that individual are more aware of and amazed by God than they were when the conversation started. This conversation hasn't torn down and divided. It's built up and left us amazed with the goodness and grace of God. And that is the type of speech Paul tells us. That we are to use our 25,000 words a day to achieve. 
build up. To build up, to strengthen. And you know, as I was thinking about this reality this week, I couldn't help but be affected by the example of the Apostle Paul himself in this regard. I mean, to be around Paul was to be around a man who would encourage you to see Christ. To be around Paul was to be around a man you would encounter and spend time with and you would be more aware of God and his active presence as a result of his conversation. When you read his letters, you'll see this is a common theme all the way through. He's just so encouraging of people. And the real kicker for me, where I think Paul really reveals himself as a man who has such a great grip on this, is when he writes to the Corinthian church. Because the Corinthian church have a lot of problems. There are a lot of things going on with the Corinthian church which are significantly problematic and are in need of sincere and specific adjustment. For example, rather than sharing their possessions with one another, they're suing one another. There are actively court cases in the local church where this side are suing that side and that side are suing that side. It's, it's paramount among them. Instead of showing hospitality to one another, they're gorging themselves on the bread and drinking all the wine to ensure that it doesn't actually go around properly. They just don't care about others. Instead of enjoying communal singing together, there are parts of the church enjoying communal sex together. An absolute defiance against the Lord. Instead of prizing Christ together, they're prizing their gifts and abilities. Look at me, I can heal, what can you do? Or I can prophesy, oh what can you do? I'm a pastor, oh well done. They're priding, wearing their gifts like badges as if to say, look at me, look at what I can do. And instead then of humbly and willingly listening to their pastor in Paul, they're growing increasingly hostile to Paul. Starting to be suspicious of Paul. And in effect, pushing Paul away. What a concoction of ideas that are going on here, don't you think? What a difficult thing to address as a pastor. And yet this is what he does. He writes to them in 1 Corinthians verse 4. This is his opening words. I give thanks to my God always for you. That to me is astounding. I could think of many words I'd be tempted to use. Those would not be the first things that come into my mind. But the Apostle Paul, as he sees this Corinthian church, he is just so grateful to God for them. He wants them to be encouraged and edified as he writes to them. Yes, he's going to need to adjust them in some things, but he wants them to see how he feels about them. And you wonder, how is he doing this? And he tells us. It's all in the text. In the opening verses of Corinthians, there's three things that you understand real quick about Paul. I mean, first of all, he understands the call of God on their lives. He understands that, yeah, sure, you're a work in progress like I am. A wretched people that we are. But praise God, he saved you by his grace. You were chosen before the foundation of the earth. He died in your place so that you may have life and that in abundance. If he so loves you that he died for you, how much more can I encourage you? He was very aware of who they are and what it has cost the Lord to save them. And he's very aware of the faithfulness of God to them. 
That what the Lord started in their lives, he will no doubt complete in their lives. For sure, they're in need of adjustment and help, but oh, praise God that he's saving you and will carry you all the way to the end. And quite simply, when Paul viewed this local church, he was more aware of evidences of grace, evidence of God's work in their life, than he was areas that they needed to change. Yes, there were areas that he needed to change, but what kept him going, what put air in his lungs, was the reality that God is at work in your midst. I see it. See, the Apostle Paul appears to have always had two grids in his mind. One would be the fruits of the Spirit. One would be the gifts of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, love, peace, gentleness, kindness, love, so forth. And then the gifts of the Spirit, all the many things that the God bestows on his people. Paul seems to have lived with that grid in his mind and understanding that these are people that have been saved by grace, that are growing, that Jesus died for. He just wants to help them see where God is at work. To be around Paul was to be deeply encouraged and to understand the active presence of God in your life. And my friends, if the Apostle Paul can be like that with the Corinthian church, how much more can we be like that with Sovereign Grace Church? There are evidences of grace everywhere. And what is so kind about the way the Lord has designed this is he has equipped us all with our use of words to help others see where God is at work. It's all part of what it is to build one another up. And that's my third and final point, number three, the effect of our words. Our words are powerful and they can bear some wonderful fruit, according to Paul. Here's what he says. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. How cool is that, don't you think? We have the opportunity, every conversation of our lives, every day of our lives, to say something that will bring grace to the hearer, that will build them up, that will encourage them. You see, the way the Lord has designed this is is fascinating to me and amazing to me. Because here's the way it works. Welcome to local church. Welcome to family life. What is clear in Scripture is that we are told in Scripture that God is always at work in the life of a believer. Amen? It is a true reality. We know it theologically. So Philippians 1 verse 6, we read, And I am sure of this, I know this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. It's a categoric statement from Paul. I'm sure of this. That if he started a work in you, if he saved you, he will carry it on to completion. He is a faithful, good, and kind God. He's the Alpha, and he's the Omega, and he's everything in between. It is his grace that will carry you home, and always will. Theologically, that is an absolute truth, that God is always at work in the life of a believer. And yet, so often... We can be somewhat unaware of this reality. You find that? You can see where God is at work in others. But for yourself, you start to think if you're doing anything right. You start to feel like, I don't even know if I fit. And so here's what the Lord does. 
He knows that we're going to feel like that. And so he puts us into the context of the local church, where each and every one of us then get to use our encouraging speech to make others aware of where the grace of God is in their lives. Isn't that incredible? What an incredible opportunity that he would call us and equip us to do exactly that. You see, as I've said before, in and through our lives, we need Jesus. But the truth is, we so often need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? We need him without a doubt, but he hasn't designed us to be lone rangers for Jesus. And he hasn't designed us to be lone rangers for Jesus because he knows you need others. And they need you. When we're going through suffering and trial then, we need Jesus, but we also need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? We need somebody to come to us when we're tired and weary and to remind us, listen, God has got this, brother. He's with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He hems you in both behind and before in his goodness. He will surely carry you home. We need Jesus, but we need others to use their gift of encouragement, their words, to help us see Christ. And as we do, and as they do, what we actually discover in our hearts is we're built up and we experience grace in that moment, don't we? When we're struggling with past sin, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within and we feel condemned, we need Jesus. But we also need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? To be alert and to be a friend and to help us see, listen, if you're struggling with condemnation, I want to encourage you, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died in your place. You're forgiven of your sin. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. My friend, rise and go forth and follow thee. Satan is tempting you over something that Christ has dealt with. Be forgiven. Experience that forgiveness. We need Jesus, but we need people to use those words to us, don't we? To help us. Otherwise, we just can't see it. When we struggle with present sin, we need Jesus. But we so often need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? I mean, like the Apostle Paul said, why is it that I keep doing things I don't want to do and I don't do things that I do want to do? Oh, wretched man that I am. Do you ever feel like you're not growing and you're never going to grow and you don't seem to be getting anywhere? I think we all feel that at times. And so here's what God does. He puts people alongside us to say, listen, you are growing. And I see it. I see the spirit at work in your life. I can see God's active presence in your life. The very fact you're saying this now, you would have never said this two years ago. Brother, be encouraged. See how he's growing you. And in all of life, we need Jesus, but we so often need someone to be Jesus to us, don't we? I mean, I love the analogy of the race in the Bible. I love it that God paints a picture for us regularly about that we're in a race. But here's another thing he does. He also many, many times in the Bible calls it a walk. And I think the walk is probably a bit more realistic. We're aiming for a race, but we're actually in a walk. We're plodding along for Jesus. And no one ever celebrates plodding, do they? You know, it's not like you come in from the car park this morning and you say, guess what? I did it in 25 seconds. I was just so fat. No one's thinking like that. You're just walking. You're just getting on with your life. And I think so much of Christianity is like that. We're just getting on. We're trying. The challenge is in the process of walking, the sad reality is so often we don't think we're doing anything of any value. 
I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not making a difference. I'm not growing. We feel it. And so what God does is he puts us in families where we can understand that everybody's just plodding. And we can point things out and say, thank you for the what you have done this morning. Thank you for the way you serve in our group. Just want to encourage you. I'm seeing growth in your life. The way you sang this morning, that blessed me. Thank you. The person singing is just walking. They're plodding, not understanding if it's making any difference. It's our job to draw attention to it. Why? So that that person can be encouraged and built up. And as a result, we stand together in unity even more. Do you see? Words, some 25,000 of them a day. They are a divinely given gift from the Lord to build one another up. And the effect of them when they are used well is they bring grace to the hearer. My friends, our words matter. Our every word matters. They're just so powerful. They can bring life or they can bring death. And I thank God that there are numerous times during this week as I was writing this message that I just paused to give thanks to God for you. You have used over the last 10 years your words wonderfully well. It has been a history and a marker of Sovereign Grace Church that you bury people under encouragement. Very quick to point out evidences of grace. Very quick to show gratitude. Very quick to help people understand where God is at work in others' lives. It's been a marker. And so this is not a corrective word to anybody. It's just a provocation to let's do it all the more. Let's ensure that what has been a marker for the last 10 years is a marker for the next 10 years. Because we need one another. And my friends, if you've been convicted this morning by your use of words, then I want to encourage you, that makes at least Two of us. Because I have. Numerous times this week that I paused in the writing of the message to give thanks to God for you. And numerous times when I was aware where I have fallen short. It says at the start of James that pastors and teachers are judged more harshly. I think part of that is because There are so many more words flying out of our mouth all the time. And so a friend that I have found this week is in 1 John 1 verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? When we run to the Lord for grace, what we discover is a gentle and lowly king One who loves us, one who is patient with us, one who doesn't put us on probation, but who runs towards us and says, son, I do forgive you. My friends, if you've been convicted by your use of words this morning, run to the cross where there will be grace for you. You'll see me there. And I want to encourage you, never then move away from the cross because you need its strength every day. James 3 verse 8 says, but no human being can tame the tongue. What a startling image. He's just told us how dangerous the tongue can be. And then says, yeah, and no human being can tame it. 
What we're talking about here isn't just hard, it is impossible. But his point is that though no human being can tame it, with God you can do all things. Christ, through his spirit, can help you and enable you to tame your tongue. So my friends, with that in mind, with us looking up to Jesus and receiving forgiveness, with us looking up to the Lord and receiving grace, I want to encourage you then, may we use our 25,000 words a day well. May we use them not to destroy or to separate. May we pay careful attention to them and use them to build up and encourage and edify for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a good and gracious king. And Lord, I thank you for the way you have fathered us this morning. Lord, I sense that you have been at work in my heart and others' hearts. And Lord, I thank you for that. You are such a faithful father and such a faithful shepherd to us as your sheep and your children. Lord, would you help us to use our words well? Every day is an opportunity. An opportunity to build up. An opportunity to bring unity. An opportunity to stand together as one striving side by side. Lord, did you protect us from the evil one? Lord, particularly during COVID, would you protect us as a church that is already divided physically? Would you help us to gather round one another with our shields held high as the darts come in to refuse to speak in a certain way? To protect what you've put together and to guard against separating it. Lord, we can't do this by ourselves. And so, Lord, as we finish this time, we finish this time appropriately looking up. The only one who can hold us. The only one who can help us. So help us, Lord. And may unity and encouragement be our theme.